0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: Foundation Arvin The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the world School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, global head of research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. Discussion is not tied to the offer of some investment products, and the views are our, our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show for you today. In the first half of the show, we're going to be talking with a technical strategist about what's going on in the markets, a little bit of the internal market behavior, some of his outlook across asset classes, stocks, bonds, commodities. Uh, professor, though, you know, we've been flirting with new highs. We haven't quite got there. A little bit of a weakness here at the end of the week.
2: Yeah, three. Well, we did cross three thousand. The actual high, closing high of S and P is three thousand twenty-five. But whenever we get around three thousand, boy, the sellers come in, don't they? I mean, um, you know, when we look at all the excitement last week on Friday, we thought we had a deal or a skinny deal. It's more like a standstill trade deal. I mean, it's like I'm not going to put on any new ones. You don't put on new ones, and we're going to try to work it out. It's not really a full deal. So, you know, it's not. uh, you know, that complete, we're, you know, we don't, Brexit seems to be moving, but again, there's a lot of opposition uh, in the parliament. Uh, the data, again, that da- GDP estimate that I look at for third quarter is still 1.3. Um, we're actually not getting a lot of data in the next few days either. Um, uh, it's it's going to be a real battle, I think. We're going to be talking about it on uh, October 30th, Fed meeting about whether they should uh, lower Another quarter point. We, we have these things that bounce around. Boeing, J and J today recalling baby powder, and you know it's been hit with a lot of them. A big hit, over five percent down. I mean that's one of the bluest of blue chips. Boeing down a lot. It'll report that some of its employees misled some of the safety investigators. You know that stock has been under pressure because of uh, the 737 Max. Uh, so I mean you're getting <clears throat> these well known stocks. <clears throat> that uh, are getting hit and uh, all the political chaos in Washington, it just seems like can't, can't get over the hump. I think we need a little bit more clarity on that, p- passing uh, the Fed meeting and all the rest um, before we start any uh, particular trend.
1: And so, uh, you know, we had some of the, the Democratic debates this week. How much are you focused on that today? Is that something people should be watching no. worried about?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we've been talking about the fact that Warren is way ahead and she seems to be consolidating. Uh, I mean, even though there is resistance and holdbacks uh, at this particular point, uh, you know, um, you know, the betting market, she's almost 50 percent and no one else is. I mean, you know, Biden is at 20 and then everyone else is barely 10 um, going down. So, you know. And, and Warren, you know, we were talking about it over lunch today about, you know, well, she can't get her wealth tax through, she can't get her Medicare for all through, even if the Democrats take the Senate, there's too many moderate Democrats and all the rest. But still, that's a, that's a, that, it's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, uh, uh, you get a lot of people like David Brooke in The New York Times today saying, I wish we had a choice other than Trump and Warren here, uh, you know, to take uh, the presidency of the United States. So I mean that's that's an ongoing issue. Uh, I think politically, what what is going on? So earnings are coming in pretty good for third quarter. I think we got almost about an eighty percent beat rate at this point, a little higher than average. Um, uh, we're only in the early stages, uh, but there's you know as normal. There's 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 these uncertainties. I think that are going to be holding the market back from any big gain going forward. Then again. You're only going to get a big decline if you really see a recession developing. And again, none of the real high-frequency indicators, to me at least, show that happening.
1: And the other big political news, we seem to be getting some positive developments on Brexit overseas. Uh, We'll have to see if they can get it past the finish line over the weekend. uh, Yeah,
2: we got got 12 more days on that. Uh, uh, There might be an extension. I think the betting markets do say that you know that Johnson's going to come back and say, "Give us another two, three, four weeks, and uh, you know pass the october thirty first deadline um I mean at least they've got something going. It's not going to be just a uh, no deal brexit uh, and I think that that certainly is a is a is a favorable uh, development for europe
1: and uh and do you like Europe today as a you know return a bounce back from the dead in some fashion
2: yeah, actually, uh, you know when you take a look. Uh, you know, Europe selling 12, 13 times PEs uh, uh, is, you know, that's a good, you know, on what percent? we were at 18. So you're talking about, you know, a good 30% cheaper than the United States. And there are some little signs that there might be a pickup in growth. There's some favorable stuff coming out of Germany. And a couple of the other countries that this uh, manufacturing slump might be uh, ending, uh, despite the fact we've got Chinese data, which you can't ever trust anyway, saying a 6% growth rate in the last quarter, uh, we know there's a more significant slowdown there. Uh, there is some Stein stabilization in Europe. As a long-term play, um, you know, I think that that should not be ignored.
1: Very good. Any, any closing thoughts for the week?
2: No, I mean, uh, you know, just keep your hats on as we ride through all, all these uncertainties that buffet the market. That's what makes it so interesting.
1: Very good. Thank you for for joining us to start the show.
2: No problem.
1: We're going to be uh, our next guest. We're going to bring in Mike Hurley, who's the chief market strategist for Highland Capital Management and portfolio manager for the Highland Socially Responsible Equity Fund. Welcome to our show, Mike. Thanks for joining us.
0: Jeremy, thank you.
1: Maybe tell our listeners a little bit about how you look at the world. What are the sort of tools and frameworks that when you're looking at strategy as chief market strategist, what are, what are you sort of primarily trained in and, and, and how, how do you like to look at the markets?
0: Well, certainly. And again, thank you for the very kind invite uh, to be here today. As you mentioned, I'm the chief market strategist and a portfolio manager at Highland Funds here in Dallas which means it's really my job to figure out where the market's actually going and then to advise my fellow PMs and to manage my fund accordingly. Um, While we use both fundamental and technical tools to manage assets, I'm a chartered market technician by training, and so I care very much about the trends of the markets and, again, the actual trends in various markets and how they affect each other. Some of my favorite tools, as you mentioned at the top of the show, are market internals, things like the number of stocks advancing versus declining, the number of new highs versus the number of new lows. And they, those types of indicators really are um, best compared to the pulse and blood pressure of the market, which is why we as technicians call them market internals.
1: And so what's your internal read? What is, uh, are we in a bull market, bear market? Is it gonna, are we going to be able to pass new highs to 3,000 and beyond?
0: <laughs> well, I, I think we are. I am maybe a little more bullish than Professor Siegel. I certainly agree with a lot of what he's saying about the cross-currents in the markets. There's always a uh, bull case and a bear case to be made. There's certainly geopolitical uncertainty around the world within our own borders as well. But again, the way the market is actually trading is most important to me. And despite this negative news and a lot of these overhangs, um, the market is hanging in there. The credit markets are well behaved. You're not seeing market internals really degrade as we've been going sideways here. And so I think we're in a cyclical advance and a secular advance. Typically, you get a bottom every four years in the stock market. You might recall we had one um, in 2011 when the U.S. suffered its debt downgrade. We also had another bear market in 2015 and 16 when China devalued the yuan and we had the um, worst start to a year ever. And then we also um, had a bear market last December. We can't uh, you know, forget that one too quickly. And so those bottoms occur about every four years, and we should be good to go for the next couple of years, at least uh, you know into Christmas of 2021.
1: Yeah, you've done some work on how you target the S and P, which which sort very interesting. I mean, it's going to be hard to describe on a radio show without seeing the charts in <laughs> front of you. But maybe talk through your analysis for how you look at that market level as a whole and and where you think the you know that session is going.
0: Well, sure, Jeremy, and thank you for mentioning that chart. It's um, a very unusual chart and some original research. I'm I'm pretty proud of. But if you look back at every market cycle since 1932, the average bull market is three years long and makes about 100%. And if you just tack on 100% and three years from the bottom we had last December, that gives you a target on the S&P around 4,600 around Christmas of 2021. Now again, that's just one number and it's very hard to make a prediction like that. But again, if you do a repeat of where every cycle would come out, should they repeat exactly, the chart looks like a, a shotgun pattern, and it's all pretty well um, correlated around that area. So again, assuming we're in a normal bull market and assuming the cycle is okay, which it, you can argue it might not be, given we have trade wars and geopolitical uncertainties, anything could derail this. But I think it pays to be optimistic for the next couple of years, at least until the market proves otherwise.
1: And and what about sort of the, just the short term, the seasonality type, uh, you know, where we are in the cycle co- towards the end of the year, you had the sell in May, go away, and is it now time to come back towards
0: the end of the year? I think it is. And again, market history is something that's probably best to, uh, you know, have in the back of your mind and not really trade on. But you do want to be aware of the cycles. And typically, there's a seasonal low in the October-November time frame. Typically, markets are strong through the first quarter of the year, and I think that is the phase we're in right now. And interestingly, if we can get to um, Germany for one moment, when you try and couple uh, fundamental data and technical data, there are occasionally some interesting places where they intersect. I know Professor Siegel mentioned the P.E. ratios on Germany are very attractive as well, which may surprise a lot given some of the weak economic reading. Well, if you look at German PMI, the... um, PMI reading was very weak recently. But if you divide those PMI ratings up into deciles, like we used to do when we were all taking tests in school, if you back test it, you'll see that the worst German PMI readings usually lead to the best stock market returns. So it often is darkest right before dawn. And I think that's the case in Germany right now.
1: Yeah, and the, I, I just was saw somebody commenting about how their the bond yields have really picked up off their lows. I mean, they're you know we're we're getting off the deepest of negative. Maybe they moved up. I want to say thirty forty basis points in 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 not so short amount of time.
0: You know, and what's interesting about that? Number one, I agree with it. I think it's a huge point. Um, but look how little press it's gotten. Remember yeah. how much press we saw when the yield curve in the U.S. inverted. Well, the yield curve? got normal about a week ago and you haven't heard very much about it. So I think the fact that this is happening quietly behind the scenes is really pretty big news. Yeah. So
1: that's beyond Germany and, and to the US that the yield curve on inverting is is a sign. I mean, do you think uh, longer term on where rates are, is this a you know, some people say we're going, you know, going to zero rates here in the US, like we have negative rates over over there in Europe and Japan. Is it at the bottom in rates, or you know, how do you how do you look at the long term and, and the short term there on the rate cycle?
0: Well, I'll tell you how I look at it, um, but I'm not sure I have the answer for you. Come on, no um, crystal ball. No crystal ball on this one. There, there is certainly some tremendously negative sentiment out there, and you're exactly right. Jamie Dimon and the folks at J.P. Morgan have come out and said, "Boy, rates are going to zero, and they're going there fast." Um, but sentiment was very positive. About this time last year, you might remember those same folks saying, boy, refinance your house now before rates go to 4%. So sentiment is a very tricky thing to get your arms around. But technically speaking, if you look at a very long-term chart of the U.S. 10-year yield or even the 30-year yield, you can see a secular downtrend from the 80s, meaning rates have been going down, lower lows, lower highs since that time. Well, since 2012, our rates have really been going sideways. And they've been trying to form a secular bottom. And I'm optimistic they hold here. Again, I'm not convinced and and dead certain, but I'm hopeful they hold here. And I'm also hopeful that our yields remaining firm up in this area in the low 1% to 2% range actually pull those yields around the world that you just mentioned higher. Now, again, that's a very – unconventional view, but if we do get some of the growth that we're potentially seeing in the charts and in the markets, in the overseas markets, that would certainly help those yield curves overseas meet ours, as opposed to ours being drugged down.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's one of those questions is, are we, you know, is it the economic fundamentals in the U.S. that's driving our yield curve, or is it really Germany and Japan and just the lowest common denominator? And you know, there's some sympathy that, you know, we, why did the Fed funds have the highest, rate in the world at the with the shortest term interest rate at where everybody else is around the world. Do you think it's really just this global phenomena or more U.S.?
0: No, I, I would agree with you there. And again, and put some pretty high conviction in that point of view. Um, global yields have absolutely drug ours down. In fact, and it's not only the Fed funds, but if you look at things like LIBOR, my goodness, LIBOR was one of the strongest yields or highest yields around the world recently, too. And so I certainly think our yields are moving in sympathy because of yields around the world and largely due to, again, pension fund managers needing some form of yield at all. So I think that's largely been a driving factor. But I'm more optimistic than others going forward that maybe those yields that are so negative, what, three quarters of the world's sovereign debt is below zero and $17 trillion or something like that, um, I'm optimistic that maybe that situation can rectify itself with a little happier ending going forward.
1: We're talking with Mike Hurley, Chief Market Strategist at Highland Capital, uh, about some of his worldviews, how he's looking at the world. And Mike, so we're talking about interest rates and, you know, you think about the cross asset work, I know, you've done a little bit of work around gold and, you know, some of the you know you could say the the big rally we've seen in gold this year has just coincided with the drop in rates and you got this derivative of a rate trade um if you think rates are are ending or bottoming is is gold over is what's your what's your thoughts on and gold tied to rates and in a bigger picture view
0: you know that's a very interesting way to look at it and um i'm going to agree with you and and disagree with you jeremy i think um Certainly, the low rates and the negative yields have absolutely put a wind at the back of gold. Um, but that being said, as a technician, we try and not figure out why something is happening, but just whether it's happening and whether it's sustainable. And the breakout in gold does look very sustainable. It broke out from a base that goes back over five years. If you look at the gold-to-silver ratio, it's in an attractive place, meaning um, at the highest level in Thirty years, so it does look like a breakout that can um, certainly needs to pause and refresh itself. But I'm I'm looking for higher gold prices going forward, irrespective of what happens with yields. Because again, if there's 17 trillion that are, you know, negatively yielding right now, maybe even if that gets cut materially to 12, you still have a whole lot of debt around the world with a negative yield, and I don't think reducing it would really um, put too much of a wind in the face of gold.
1: It's interesting that that gold to silver chart has also, you know, gone along on Twitter in a lot of places. Um, it is. Do you look so there the, the, My what you just said seems to be gold to silver at highs is a confirmation for gold. Other people saying silver is due for a catch up. And if you're going to really get this big breakout, you need silver to participate. What's any any thoughts on, on that part of it?
0: I, I think if you look back at that ratio, which is, again, how many ounces of gold can buy, how many ounces of silver, um, I think both are correct. Usually when that's high, it means that the precious metals are going to continue to rally. And the fact that it is so stretched, you can also make the case that, boy, silver's probably a little bit better of a bet right now as a catch-up play than gold. And so I think that ratio being so high argues for both of those.
1: Interesting. And and any other commodities, when you look around the rest of the commodities complex, anything that speaks to you, um, things that are either confirmations of what's going on in global economy or or parts of the commodity complex that you're you're interested in?
0: Yes. commodities are really an interesting place right now, and it's very tough to give them a broad sweep or paint them with a broad brush. In general, when commodities are low and stable, it's good for stocks. And again, I think that's another important argument for stocks here. Stocks don't like inflation and they don't like deflation. But if commodities are just low and stable, that's good news. That being said, if you look at some of the individual ones, such as crude oil, crude oil is really um, best confirmed its trend with rig counts. And currently, rig counts are declining. And it really suggests that despite all the geopolitical instability, that crude may have a tough time rallying. Now, I'm not looking for crude to go to $20. But if you look at the Commitment of Traders report, which is the professionals who actually pull crude oil out of the ground, they have been more and more bearish as the years have gone by for the last 10 or 15 years, which makes me think that probably a lot of us are going to be driving Teslas in the future, and this energy independence is here to stay. So those are some of the interesting trends within the commodity um, landscape that are individually oriented. But as an asset class, I just think low and stable commodities is, is good news for stocks.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting coming from Texas down there. You've got a lot of oil developments Uh-oh. for the economy. <laughs> no, I mean, it's inter- I mean, there's a lot of uh, political... Um, I mean, it's interesting how much of the oil price today is pricing in the political risk premium of, you know, the Saudi, the Iranian tensions and the bombings, you know, the, the disruption that came from Saudi's fields and then the, the Iranian tankers. I mean, any any sense of how much is in, in the price today? I mean, you, you think there's pressure downward there?
0: No, but um, I, I think you're hitting on a, a critically important point and one of the most um, useful things I've ever learned in, in my career, Jeremy, and that is you you can always make a bullish case and a bearish case for the markets. Um, and that's why we have markets, is to express yep. those opinions. But you really want to listen to how the market handles news, not the news itself. And um, just recently, we obviously had some, some terrible attacks in the Middle East on refineries, the side of the refinery, and then the, the tankers, the retaliation. And crude oil is really having trouble budging. And, you know, if that market were stronger, boy, just the rumor of an attack or retaliation would send crude oil higher. But the fact that crude oil is not really bouncing meaningfully, or when it did bounce meaningfully, it was sold off within a week, tells me that that market is is on the the weaker footing, technically. And you can go back uh, across history. I remember when the housing bubble burst, um, housing stocks index broke their uptrend, the same day, you know, very, very, very bullish uh, fundamental news came out that would lead you to believe that you know, the housing stocks were going to be trees that grew to the sky when it really wasn't the case based on what the market was telling you.
1: Yeah. Now, with that oil perspective and, and Texas in general, I mean, I've wondered when the oil was was moving higher, how the how we should think about that for the U.S. economy. For a while, we you know we, we would look at a rise in oil prices as being we were importing all this oil it was negative. The consumer it would cramp cramped the consumer. Do you think we've uh, reached a place in the U.S. where oil price rises are are helpful to the U.S. economy?
0: That's probably uh, beyond my pay grade and something <laughs> we need to speak with Jeremy or Professor Siegel about. Um, But one thing I have noticed from, again, a confirmation in the important asset classes are to really keep an eye on um, copper, the shipping indices, and things like that, because the economy really is a a global economy. And again, while I don't want to enter in an economic debate with you, um, a lot of people are are getting skeptical of our PMI readings right now, because, again, we're less of a manufacturing economy and more of a construction economy. And if that's truly the case... And again, you can argue it both ways. Maybe these low interest rates are actually going to help the U.S. economy because we're less focused on you know, building things that aren't construction-related. Yeah. Um, so again, things like the SEA uh, ETF is great to watch for uh, what the shipping stocks are doing, the Baltic Dry Goods Index, the price of copper. I think all of those are a little more important than the price of oil.
1: Yeah, the one one thing where we got to be cautious on talk about ETFs in our program. We talk markets, but but not ETFs. Just uh,
0: yes, I'm, I a apologize. Little, there, that's no, no, that's that. an indicator,
1: um, so when you think about the you know where we talked about the U.S. markets being in a, in a bullish upcycle, uh, are there parts of the U.S. you are looking for uh, in terms of what parts you like for the U.S. given what's what's going on, all the dynamics?
0: Certainly, and relative strength is is a very very important tool uh, to technicians and. As are factors and factor investing, and so anytime you 're trying to make money in the market you should you should consider those. Um, momentum is a, a factor that largely works over time, but currently, the relative strength is is really favoring a couple of sectors. Technology has been strong. Consumer discretionary has been strong. The energy sector has been weak on a relative basis, which, again, I think is probably a message um, to them from the markets on a secular basis. And one that is just starting to turn around, we hope, are the financial stocks. And again, I think that's really important to see some follow-through and some improvement there, because that would confirm or suggest or lead that interest rates may actually be bottoming here and hold the 150 area on the 10-year. And if that's the case, that would broaden the advance in the uh, overall market. The Russell 2000 has a, a large number of financial components in it. So if the banks and brokers and financial stocks can start to gain a little bit of momentum here. I think that would help the market overall broaden out, the rally broaden out, and you'd see some upside confirmation such as the Russell 2000, you know, breaking out above 1550 and things like that.
1: Yeah, we, it was a really big rotation in September with rates moving, value moving, financials moving, all exactly. the rate sensitive sectors, utilities, the 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 consumer staples underperforming, so it, it it's like all things corresponding to just what's happening in rates. Is that is that your worldview there?
0: It is. I think it's a very 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 important issue, and that's why the world is so worried or concerned, and what a mystery it is on whether rates in the U.S. are going to follow those around the globe, or again if we can see those around the globe bounce and kind of catch up a little bit to where we are in the U.S. It's a critically important question because, again, going down to the stock and the sector level, if you can see the rally broaden out, and this is a healthy rally. There's nothing wrong with this rally, and internals remain firm, but they would be undeniably firm, and you would see some upside momentum, or that catalyst Professor Siegel mentioned, if you could see the value line get back through 6,400. If you could see the mid-caps get back through 2,000. If you could see the Russell 2,000 get back through 1,600. I mean, those would be all positive signs that this bull market is is confirmed and broadening and, and going to continue for another year or two.
1: So we'll keep our eye on the German Bund as the dictator of growth versus value, financials, all these rate-sensitive sectors, all comes down to Germany. Um, so we're in our final minute here, Mike. Any sort of final closing thoughts, things you'd point people to, how to stay in touch with your work, or, or what your, your, your final thoughts of the day are?
0: Um, well, thank you very much for, again, inviting me to the show. We do um, publish research alongside our fund that you can get if you like. Or, of course, go by Highland Funds and, and look at our products. We'd be, we'd be happy to, to tell you about them and, again, show you what we do. But, again, we try and use fundamental work technical work, credit work, and wrap it all together and try and make the best decisions possible for investors.
1: Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.
0: For more insight from Business Radio